Again, Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be at. This morning, we're continuing our summer series through the Sermon on the Mount. We finished the book of Nehemiah recently. Been a blessing so far, just going through this sermon, um, getting to teach the first couple last week, Josh Dean teaching part three. Some other guys still going to be teaching here in the future. But part four today, we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, all the way through chapter 6, verse 4. And just for some context, as we saw last week in the study Josh Dean taught, which he did such a great job on Matthew 5, verses 21 through 37, Jesus wanted to make sure his disciples knew that he was not disregarding God's law. That would have been a sort of a natural question that might have arisen in the minds of the people who had been following him. What is Jesus going to usher in now? What's going to be his thing? What's he going to be about? Is he going to kind of hold us to the standard of the law that we really can't live up to? Or is there going to be some new thing? And, And Jesus saying, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Speaking to the people, the crowd, look, In order to get into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It would have blown everybody's minds. What is Jesus really asking of us? How can any of us get into the kingdom then if that's the standard? But the key there was Jesus saying, I came to fulfill it. I came. I'm going to fulfill it on your behalf. I'm going to do what you can't do. And in my righteousness, as I go to the cross eventually, this is obviously not yet a pointing forward, that we would gain a righteousness that's not our own. You know, Jesus didn't have to give us his righteousness. I've said this I don't know how many times over the years. It is the most unfair exchange ever to happen in all of human history. We give God all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, and what does he do in return? He gives us himself. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his salvation. He gives us his spirit. He gave his son. He came to fulfill I want to remind us of some things Josh said in his study last week, some quotes, some little snippets of what he shared. He said, the Pharisees took righteousness far, but they didn't take it far enough. More than ethics, Jesus is giving supporting points for what he just said in verse 20 about us needing a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. He said, we have to stop looking at things from a human perspective and align our thoughts with heaven. He said, this sermon makes everyone equally guilty and leads every single one of us to Jesus. He said that Jesus is calling us to live the way of the kingdom and the way of the kingdom needs to be in us. So good. As we've been seeing and will continue to see, the values and standards of Jesus' kingdom are directed at the heart. They're directed at the heart because everything else flows from there. 
the, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, as we saw in verse 3 of chapter 5, to those who know that they can't make it into the kingdom in their own power or of their own resources or anything of us, those that recognize their spiritual poverty, who see that they're completely in need of Jesus, who come to Jesus on that basis by faith, are the ones who have been given his kingdom, his salvation, his righteousness, his spirit to live out the way of the kingdom. And all the ways Jesus is speaking into in this sermon, when we look at this, as Josh said, this, this makes us all equally guilty, leads all of us to Jesus. We, we see as we go through all of these things, as Jesus teaches us all these things, we go, Lord, I need you. Your way is so much different. Your way is contrary to how me and my own flesh tends to do things, my defaults. And so, Lord, I need you. I need your grace. I need your power. I need your spirit bringing transformation and, and, and shaping how I view things and see things and do things. And he's able to do that. Isn't that rad? He's able to do those things. And so with that context in mind, let's read verses 38 through 42 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. In verse 38, we see the second to last time of, of six total times in chapter 5 where Jesus says, it has been said... And then follows that up by saying, but I say to you. This is following the pattern of the previous verses where Jesus is pointing to something in the Mosaic law. And then he's putting the proper interpretation to it. He's getting to the heart of what God is really wanting us to hear and know and receive. This command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, found in Exodus chapter 21 it established punishments for an offender, but it also set limitations on what could be done to an offender. This law of retaliation was something that the people obviously knew about, and it was something that the religious leaders of Jesus' day had put their own interpretation on to where it actually wrongly became an obligation in personal relationships. If someone did something to you, you were obligated to do it back to them. You've got to follow this. Get back. Get even. You got to. When Jesus says not to resist an evil person, that word resist in the Greek speaks of opposing being against, expressing opposition to. How are kingdom people to react when an offense happens? I mean, we might be able to go, well, I know how I react when offense happens. It's not always very good. For honest, 
We don't always handle it. Our default is this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, scar for a scar. How are people in the kingdom of heaven supposed to react? Not with retaliation, not with revenge, not with getting even, but with grace. You imagine if Jesus applied this law of retaliation to us in our relationship with him. Oh my goodness. You you and I would have been, I mean, we would have been decimated right away. Because we offend God. We offend him through our sin, through our pride. It happens. We get so focused on our interpersonal relationships, sometimes we forget that vertical, most important relationship. How do we approach him? How do we treat him? How do we view him? You and I, at times, offend him. We grieve him. We hurt the heart of God through our actions at times, don't we? But how does he respond to us? Not an eye for an eye, not a tooth for a tooth, but with grace. Now, yes, he disciplines us 100%. It's a biblical principle of chastisement. We see this in scripture. But with grace, even the discipline is in grace. It's in love. Here in these verses, I believe we see the kingdom attitude of meekness in action, that beatitude we saw in verse 5. Meek people aren't weak people who can't fight their own battles. They're humble people who have been given the power of the Holy Spirit of God who let the Lord fight their battles and be their defender. Didn't we just sing about that this morning? Or when I fight, I fight on my knees. The battle belongs to you. But how often do we take the battle to another person? Jesus gives some practical examples of this in verses 39 through 42. And I I liked what pastor and Bible commentator David Gutzik had to say about the the first practical, practical example Jesus gives about being struck on the cheek just to provide some of the cultural context and understanding. He said, when Jesus speaks about turning the other cheek, he isn't talking about being passive in the face of a physical assault. He means we should not defend ourselves in the face of a grievous insult. Culturally, the slap on the cheek was more an attack on honor than a physical assault. Jesus is not prohibiting defense, but retaliation. See, Jesus is speaking to that area of pride that wants to retaliate when feeling dishonored or disrespected, being insulted, and tells us that the response of kingdom people to being dishonored, to being disrespected, to being insulted, should not only be to not retaliate but to humbly allow an enemy 
to dishonor us, turning the other cheek to them also. Why? Because the way of the kingdom is not revenge. It's drawing others to salvation. Jesus allowed his enemies to dishonor and disrespect him. Jesus had religious leaders saying that he was possessed by Beelzebub. Saying to him, you're a demon. You're a Samaritan. You were born out of wedlock. They accused him of being a a wine-bibber and a glutton. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. They insulted him. They dishonored him continually throughout his ministry. And nowhere do we see Jesus going, well, you want to go there? I mean, I wrote in the sand with the adulterous woman. I'll just spell it all out for you. Let's talk about all the sin in your life. I know it. Blasphem. He doesn't do that. He allowed his enemies to dishonor and disrespect him because he didn't come to make people treat him right. He didn't come to put people in their place in that sort of way. He came to seek and to save the lost. He was more concerned with winning people's souls than winning a good word from them. Don't we have a hard time with that? I want to save my honor. I want to speak up for myself. You're wrong about me. But if we could get this kingdom mindset, man, if my life was consumed with winning people over for Jesus, what would I allow somebody potentially to do in the way of offense to me? To not respond offensively. Now in verses 40 through 42, we see some more practical examples. Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you, take, take away your tunic. Give him your cloak also. The cloak was something legally that they... that that should not be taken from you. He says, look, just let him have it too. Jesus says, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. That day, if a, a Roman soldier demanded you go with them one mile, carrying their pack for them, which can you imagine under Roman occupation in the mind of a Jewish person for, for Jesus to be saying, if a soldier comes to you, and, and just because they just want to really stick it to you, they say, you're going to go with me a mile and you're going to carry my pack. You're going to carry my burden. Jesus says, go with them too. Go two miles. How that would just... I mean, these people were still looking for Jesus to come in just... At some point, Jesus, you're going to like overthrow Rome, Right? Like, we're going to do the, like, insurrection thing at some point, right? Like, at what point are you going to return the kingdom of Israel to us, Jesus? And Jesus is like, that's not what we're doing. Win them over through love. 
Jesus says, give to him who asks you. From him who wants to borrow from you, don't turn away. The goal here is not to become a doormat to be walked on and taken advantage of by whoever just gets in line for that in, in our lives. No, it's, it's handling things done to us, handling things asked of us in a way where we're ultimately seeking to win another person over for Jesus. Are we willing to go the extra mile? Are we willing to, to be open-handed with what we have? Are we willing to be insulted for the sake of Jesus so that somebody else, through how we respond, can see the grace of Jesus in us and be drawn to Jesus through us? And Jesus is now going to masterfully build upon what he's just said here by emphasizing the importance and priority of agape love in his kingdom in our next section, verses 43 through 48. But let's read verses 43 and 44 first. Jesus goes on to say, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus, did you have to say that? Did you have to put that little part in there? Don't we want to be able to define love in our terms? If Jesus had just said, love your enemies, we'd be like, cool. You know how I love my enemies? I don't talk to them anymore. I cut them out of my life, but I still love them. Jesus is like, let me define this a little bit. Let's define what we're going to do in love. What does loving others look like in the way of the kingdom? Jesus, for a sixth and final time here in this chapter, says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, unlike those other times Jesus referenced what the people had heard, here in this verse, Jesus is referencing not only a command in the law, but also how that command had been wrongly interpreted by some of the religious leaders in his day. You shall love your neighbor is a command in the law. It's found in Leviticus chapter 19. But hating your enemy is not. It's not in there. Not only does Jesus expose that wrong interpretation, he clarifies that the command to love is to extend to every person, even an enemy. Jesus here drives the command to love much deeper than anyone in that day would ever have applied it. Saying that we're to love our enemies, bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us, pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. This is the way of our King Jesus and his kingdom. Think about how revolutionary and radical this statement is from King Jesus. He's teaching about his kingdom. He's teaching what the people in this kingdom are to be like and be about. He's showing what kind of king he is and now showing how he sees those who make themselves enemies to his kingdom and, and enemies of those in his kingdom. 
And when getting to how to deal with enemies, his way of doing things is the complete opposite of any other king and kingdom in all of history. Because worldly rulers and nations and kingdoms that have enemies take a different approach to opposition. When attack comes, war is waged, blood is shed, destruction ensues. And, you know, maybe a nation does not lean towards violence in response to enemy enemy opposition. Even for them, walls are built up to keep people out and away. Commerce ceases. Friendly interactions are non-existent. And yet look at what Jesus requires of the citizens of his kingdom and how to deal with enemies. He says, love your enemies. Not if you feel like loving your enemy, then do it. He's asking something of us. He's commanding, actually, in the way that this is written in the Greek language. He's commanding us something that our emotions likely will not match up with. When somebody hates me and is cursing me and is doing wrong to me and they're using me and they're they're persecuting me, they're mistreating me, my emotion isn't, oh man, I want to do good to them. I really want to bless them. How can I bless you? How can I pray for you? We start pulling out like some of the Psalms, the prayers of David, break their teeth, Lord. Break it. Crush them. <laughs> For the honesty of David, he's so just like so raw. And Jesus is like, but that's not that's not how we're doing things. Love. Love them. Not just don't fight them, not just don't ignore them, but to really love them in the ways that he's called us to. Jesus here is using the Greek word, and there's multiple words for, that were translated love in the Greek language. He's using the word agape here, which is the kind of love that God loves us with. It's a love that we could describe this way. It is selfless, self-sacrificial, unconditional. It's others-centered. It loves with action without expecting anything in return. And this kind of love loves even when rejected. This is the kind of love that Jesus is telling us here that we are to love our enemies with. What Jesus is requiring of us is contrary to our sinful nature, It's not possible without a divine, supernatural work of His Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, Jesus doesn't command us to do this impossible. Impossible? Sound like Popeye for a second there. He doesn't command us to do this impossible task to discourage us or make us feel defeated in light of our natural human inability, but to deepen our dependency upon Him. 
seeing our need for Jesus, relying upon his supernatural ability to live these things out. The command to love our enemies is a command. Each one of these things, to bless and to do good and to pray, they're a command. And now in verse 44, he states positive ways to show that agape love to our enemies. How? By blessing. That word bless meaning to invoke divine favor. That in love, we would speak things that would encourage and build up in the face of being cursed by someone. We're to love by doing good. That in love, active, we would actively pursue doing something good, blessing someone else through practical acts of service in the face of being hated. And we're to love by praying that in, in love, we would seek the Lord on their behalf in the spite, in the face of spiteful abuse and mistreatment. And as Jesus commands all of these things, and we look at ourselves and we go, Jesus, I don't have it in me to do these things. We're reminded that Jesus never commands us to do something that he won't also give us the enablement and the empowerment to carry out. Guys, he's given us his spirit. He's given us power to live differently, to love differently, to respond differently, to treat people differently. But we've got to come to Him for every single one of those things. Look how Jesus follows this up in verses 45 through 48. He says, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Here in verse 45 is a, is a second reference Jesus makes in this chapter to us being able to be identified as children of God. The other time being in verse 9 where he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Listen, in, in neither place is Jesus saying that if we do this, then we'll become children of God because becoming a child of God, becoming part of the family of God only happens when someone receives God's free gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. No, he's saying that in our peacemaking and in our loving of our enemies in these different ways that others will be able to see that we belong to the family of God. See the goodness and mercy and grace of our Father in heaven who makes His Son rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust with the goal of causing the enemies of God to be transformed by the salvation of God into becoming a son or daughter of God. 
I like what Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe said about these verses. He said, Jesus gave several reasons for this admonition. Number one, this love is a mark of maturity, proving that we are sons of the Father and not just little children. Number two, it is godlike. The Father shares His good things with those who oppose Him. Matthew 5.45 suggests that our love creates a climate, he says, of blessings that makes it easy to win our enemies and make them our friends. Love is like the sunshine and rain that the Father sends so graciously. And then third, he says, it is a testimony to others. What do ye more than others is a good question. God expects us to live on a much higher plane than the lost people of the world who return good for good and evil for evil. As Christians, we must return good for evil as an investment of love. And then he goes on to say the word perfect in Matthew 5.48 does not imply sinlessly perfect, for that is impossible in this life, though it is a good goal to strive for. He says it suggests completeness, maturity as the sons of God. The Father loves His enemies and seeks to make them his children, and we should assist him. That was a great insight that he makes there. You know, when we consider what Jesus has taught us so far in verses 38 through 48, and then consider the life of Jesus, he clearly exemplified all these things he's telling us in his own life. So he's not telling us things that he never lived out first, but he's calling us to walk in his footsteps, to follow his example, so that even those who are offending or insulting us, who are trying to do evil to us, who are wanting to take advantage of us, who hate us and curse us and spitefully use us and and persecute us, that, that through our witness and how we respond and how we handle things, and how we treat them in return, that even our enemies would see how gracious and good and loving our Heavenly Father is towards them, and would be won over to Him because of the example, the witness, the conduct of our lives. Guys, there's got to be something that marks us as believers that's different than the world. Jesus is calling us clearly into a completely different, completely supernatural way of living. The kingdom of heaven isn't just a, let's put even more rules on you. It's, I need the spirit of God. I need the power of God. I need the righteousness of God working in my life. I I need Jesus' help. But, but, But if I rely upon Him, if you rely upon Him, if we're submitted to Him, if we're walking in His Spirit, guys, God will do something amazing. Not necessarily getting rid of the enemies, but that our enemies would see something different about you and me. How are people going to see our God if they're not seeing His work in our life? How are they going to know how good He is, how loving He is, how gracious He is, if those characteristics are not present 
in the lives of his kids here. We are reflecting the Lord to other people, but what are they seeing about him as they see us? I pray more and more they see Jesus. Would you make that your prayer too? Lord, I want more and more for people to see Jesus in me. I want people to see you, Lord. Because we're looking around and what are we seeing? We're seeing people that are in darkness. They're separated from God by their sin. They're on the road leading to destruction. They need Him. They don't even know that they need Him. But they need Him. And the Lord has placed you and me here in the lives of those people in the darkness as the light of the world so that other people see Jesus. They see Jesus. Let's move on, though, in our final section this morning. I don't know what my microphone's doing here. Hopefully it works. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Let's read those verses. Jesus continues saying, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed... Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly." In verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, there's going to be three different times, I believe, where Jesus speaks into the hypocrisy that was present. People thinking that by a display of their supposed devotion to God, their outward sort of display of righteousness, that they, were, they had this great relationship with the Lord. Look at how righteous I am in my giving. Look at how righteous I am in my praying. Look at how righteous I am in my fasting. And Jesus is going to sort of debunk all of that and show that, look, it's got a true righteousness is seen in the heart. What's, what's going on with the motivation of the heart? Where are you at truly in your relationship with the Lord? And he's going to show us how we, how we can have real, true communion with God as Father. And Jesus is already here in, in the last portion of his sermon given insight into how someone in his kingdom can be rewarded in heaven. In verse 12 of chapter 5, he talked about how when in persecution for his namesake, there's a great reward in heaven. But now here in verse 1 of chapter 6, we see something that will rob us of a potential reward from the Lord. And that's doing charitable deeds in order to be seen by other people. Understand, this, this does not contradict what Jesus said back in chapter 5, verse, t- verse 16, where he said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not a contradiction. The problem isn't with people seeing a good work, a charitable deed. 
Like this morning, the fan was broken when we came in. And George, just out of the goodness of his heart, he goes, I want to fix that fan so that we have some air in here. Praise God for you, George. <laughs> George isn't doing it to be seen. He's going like, I just want to be a blessing. But we saw it. We're feeling it. We're blessed by it. Thank you, Lord, for air in a non-conditioned building in the heat of the summer. The problem is with people seeing a good work, a charitable deed that we do, the problem is with doing those things with the wrong motivation. We see this wrong motivation in Jesus saying, to be seen by them. What this shows us is that we can do the right things with the wrong heart, the wrong motivation, which will cause us to miss out on the good rewards the Lord wants to bless us with in heaven and will rob Him of the glory that belongs to Him alone. You ever found yourself doing something and you start the thing with the right heart, the right motivation? You're doing it for the Lord. And then maybe something shifts along the way. And you, you still want to do it for the Lord, but it's like, it's kind of nice. People give me some recognition. It's kind of nice when somebody thanks me. And then maybe that kind of continues on that path and eventually it shifts again. And there's a, a, another drift in the heart where it's like, now I'm no longer doing the thing for the Lord really at all. I'm doing it for me. I find this in just a transparent moment. I find this happen in my home, in my marriage. You're like, you know, in my heart, I'm like, man, I want to be a blessing. And I'm not, I'm not saying any of this to pump myself up, okay? I'm just giving you a real life example to show how sinful I am, how much I need the Lord's help. I'll vacuum or do the dishes or laundry or whatever. And then in my heart, heart's in the right place. Just want to be a blessing, not doing it for any recognition. Then my wife comes home and I'm like, wonder if she saw that. wonder if she knows all the things I did. Somehow, and they kind of just drop it. I don't know. It's a, yeah, so what did you do? Well, oh, you know, I did that and that. Reward robbed. <laughs> it can be so easy to have it just switch so quickly. We like to be thanked. We like to be thought well of. We like to be congratulated. There, there's a part of us that gravitates towards that. The religious leaders, that's what motivated them. They wanted to be seen. They wanted people to think that they were righteous. And so they would have the trumpet blow. Look at Rabbi. Oh, he's about to give to somebody. He's so good. He's so godly. Look at how generous he is. <laughs> in the street, in the synagogue. Can you imagine being around that? Like... What's about to happen? Somebody's about to get blessed. Is it me? <laughs> they have their reward. 
And God is robbed of the glory. Verse 2, Jesus tells us to live a life free of hypocrisy, to not be like the hypocrites. This is Jesus, really. This is an indictment to the religious leaders of that day. Don't be like these hypocrites. They're hypocritical. They're playing the actor. The external things don't match the internal reality of their lives. Jesus later in Matthew would say they're full of dead man's bones. Yeah, like he had some really strong things to say about the religious leaders. Because they were driven by a desire to be seen, to be esteemed by people. They wanted the glory. They wanted the recognition. But those things didn't belong to him, to them. They belonged to God. And so the praise of, of people was the only reward they would ever get. But as we see in verses 3 and 4, we're not to be like them. We aren't to be walking in hypocrisy. That's not to be us as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. William MacDonald in his commentary said this about these verses. He wrote, When a follower of Christ does a charitable deed, it is to be done in secret. It should be so secret that Jesus told his disciples, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus uses this graphic figure of speech to show that our charitable deed should be for the Father and not to gain notoriety for the giver. This passage, he says, should not be pressed to prohibit any gift that might be seen by others, since it is virtually impossible to make all one's contributions strictly anonymous. It simply condemns the blatant display of giving. Listen, the one who sees in secret, which reminds us that nothing is in secret with the Lord, nothing's concealed, nothing is hidden from him. He sees it all, that the Lord himself will reward us openly because that's the kind of father he is, rewarding us in a way that will far outweigh any temporal reward that could come from someone else in this world. And I think there's also some encouragement here because sometimes, you know, there's a lot of people who they, they sort of live in the shadows, so to speak. They don't have a very visible sort of ministry, or they, the, a lot of the things that maybe they do are not recognized. I think moms fall into this category oftentimes. They, they do all sorts of things that aren't seen, taking care of babies and little ones who aren't continually praising and thanking them or a husband that sees all the things and gives them praise for what they're doing. It's not valued as much maybe in the eyes of this world how great that sacrifice and that gift of love is that they're giving. Jesus sees it. The Father in heaven, He sees all of it. And He rewards every bit of it. None of it goes unnoticed by Him. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that encouraging to know that God sees it? He sees our hearts. He sees where we're at. He sees our love for Him and our desire to serve Him. And nothing is ever hidden from His sight. And He's a rewarding 
blessing sort of God. The Lord Himself. You know, and then He'll give like this really low-ranking angel. He'll go send that angel to go bless you. Don't worry, it'll get to you eventually. No, the Lord Himself. The one who we have access to, the one whose throne of grace is open to us at all times. That He beckons us to come to, the Lord Himself sees and rewards. And He doesn't just reward charitable deeds, He rewards those acts of love. He rewards those desires to show grace when it's difficult. He rewards. He sees it. None of it goes unnoticed. Your enemy might not notice. Your enemy might not thank you. Well, thanks for blessing me when I was cursing you. Thanks for praying for me. The Lord sees it. He values every bit of it. And we we can know as we seek to live out these things by the power of the Spirit. You know what's happening? We are honoring and pleasing our God. What else could we ask for? What else is God looking for? That we would live for an audience of one, for Him and Him alone. Amen? We'll dig into this more next week. Now the worship team come back up. You know, whether it's what Jesus spoke into and making it clear the way of His kingdom is not a way of revenge, it's a way of meekness and grace and love, or what Jesus spoke into and making it clear we're to love and and how we're to love as we live by the ways of His kingdom. Or, or maybe what Jesus spoke into and in making it clear that the motivation of our hearts matter greatly in being kingdom people who give and seek to bless others without hypocrisy. I'm confident there are things here for all of us that the Lord wants to both encourage and challenge us with as kingdom citizens today. But for any who are not a part of the kingdom of heaven, of heaven, who've never repented of their sin, who've never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Look, the reality for you today is that you are an enemy of God. And I don't say that with any pleasure, but that's the spiritual reality for any person's life who has not given their heart to Jesus Christ. You are an enemy of God. Not an enemy with no hope of your present spiritual state changing. Not an enemy who God hates, but an enemy that God loves so dearly that He gave His only begotten Son. That if you'll believe in Jesus, you will not perish eternally in hell, but have everlasting life in the presence of Jesus. See, Jesus died in our place on a Roman cross. He took our sin. He paid the penalty for our sin in full. The sinless giving His perfect life for sinful humanity so that we can be saved, we can be forgiven, we can be reconciled to the Father, no longer an enemy but now brought into His family all because of what Jesus has done, all because of what Jesus has provided through His death, burial, and resurrection. Doing it for you and for me. 
know this today, that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where everything can change. Everything can change. And maybe even for some of us, we're going, look, I've been living my way. Maybe we've read all this and we're like, well, I've, I'm more in the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing. I'm still kind of, I'm like there. Maybe you're looking at the command to love and you're like, I'm not there. You're looking at the motivations of your heart and you're going, I'm not there. For you, God can change that. He wants to change that. But would we humble ourselves before Him? Would, would we submit ourselves to the ways of the kingdom? And that just starts with surrendering afresh your heart to the King. That doesn't mean you need to get saved all over again. But is He enthroned on the throne of your heart? Or has other things crowded Him out? Today's a day when things can change. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you're a king like no other. Lord, that your kingdom is like no other. It's perfect, Lord. It's good. It's eternal. And God, your kingdom and the way of your kingdom is at work today through your people. The good news of the kingdom is still happening today because our king is enthroned in heaven wanting to draw people into his kingdom and God you want to use us in that happening and Lord maybe today God you're looking at some and you're going I, I just I want to encourage you I see what you've been doing and I, I have rewards for you. I, I see that. I'm blessed by that. Maybe for some this morning, you just you need to know God's pleased. Maybe for others, you're going, my heart's not there. I've not been there. I've not been living the way of the kingdom. I've not been rightly representing my king. There's hypocrisy. There's bad motivation. There's the wrong kind of love. There's a lack of grace. Lord, if that's any of us, God, do a deep, transforming work in us today. Lord, realign priorities. Realign perspectives, Lord. Give us your love. Lord, give us the power of your spirit. Lord, pour out your grace, Lord, as we humble ourselves before you. God, we want to live the way of the kingdom not the way of the hypocrite. We want to win people over for Jesus. Not be seen better, better by others. But Lord, if there's anybody here, maybe online, God, that they've never, they've never opened their heart to you. Lord, they're not a part of your kingdom. They've never repented of their sin and and put their faith in you, Jesus. I pray, Lord, even now you would bring conviction and convincing. Lord, that they would see their need for you, Jesus. See their sinfulness. See, Lord, 
God, that that state of being an enemy is something that you want to do something about, Lord. You want to take them from being an enemy and you want to make them a friend. You want to make them a son or daughter. And if that's anybody here today, that's you. I want to pray for you that you would make that decision for Jesus Christ. If that's anybody, would you just raise your hand where you're at? Say, that's me, Jesus. I want you to save me. I want you to make me a son or daughter today. Lord, you know the state of people's hearts. Lord, you know even those who may be watching online or listening later, and maybe someone's going, that's me. They're lifting their hand in their car. They're lifting their hand in their living room or at work or wherever they might be saying, Jesus, that's me. Lord, God, would you meet them where they're at? Encourage you, if that's you, that you would just say a simple prayer from your heart. Humbling yourself before God that you would say, Father, I need you. I need to be saved. I don't want to be an enemy of you any longer. Jesus, I put my faith in you. I believe that you died on the cross for me. That you rose from the grave. That I might be raised as well. Jesus, I believe you're my Savior. Would you save me? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you cleanse me of all my unrighteousness? Would you make me a child of God today? Jesus, I repent of my sin. I I turn away from it. And I put my faith in you. Father, give me eternal life. Seal me with your Holy Spirit. And help me to live out this new life in you, in your kingdom, for your glory. I just encourage you, if you've done that, the Bible says you will be saved. Lord, we thank you for the assurances that you give us. Lord, we thank you for the commands that you give us. And that with the commands, Lord, you give us enablement, empowerment by your spirit to carry these things out. Lord, we see our own inability. But Lord, we also see at the same time your supernatural, supernatural ability. Lord, to live in and through us, God. God, that we other people would see you, Jesus, in our lives and be drawn to you. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give you this time now, Lord, as we continue this attitude of worship and these songs of praise, Lord, and the taking of communion and in receiving prayer, Lord, if that's us. God, continue to move by your spirit, Lord. Have your way. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.